Good morning. My name is Andrew Nimick. I serve on the City Arts team. And I'm going to read this morning our scripture, which is from Ephesians in chapter 4, beginning at verse 17 through the end of the chapter. I'll be reading from the New International Version. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speaking and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. I know he mentioned that he was on the city arts team. He sent me a portrait that he painted this week. Um, and so if you have a chance, grab him and ask him to see it because it is incredible, and he is so talented. Uh, good morning, family. How are we doing this morning? Oh, I'm going to be honest, that was pretty sad. Wow. <laughs> I hope we're doing better than that. Okay. <laughs> Today we are rounding the corner and making our way into the final stretch of our series, Becoming Family. We have peeled back the curtain, and we've looked at not just the ideal version of what church could be, but what this beautiful, messy, and complex community of faith actually is. What are some of the roadblocks that keep us from going all the way in and pushing past surface connections and settling into covenant community with one another? The reality is that this is easy to talk about. It's inspiring to listen to while we're all facing forward and looking at the stage and not actually interacting with one another. But on the ground, real life practice of a lot of these things is hard work. It doesn't always come natural to us and there's things that pushes us into places that we don't feel like we should be all of the time. Today we are diving into the harsh reality of living life together with other humans. Conflict, 
pain, and hurt. Today, we're pulling up a chair and having a conversation about something that is probably near and sensitive to your story, the phrase we hear painfully often in Western church culture, church hurt. Some stats for you this morning. A large majority of the nation's unchurched population is drawn from the sector comprised of people who consider themselves to be Christian. Most unchurched people, more than four out of five, were formerly regular participants in church life, many of whom departed after an ugly incident that hurt them deeply. A 2019 unchurched report by Billy Graham Center Institute and Lifeway Research teases out the data that we just read and found out that a little over a third of the people who used to attend church now stay away specifically because they, quote, lost trust in God, the church, and Christians. The number of Americans ages 18 through 29 who have no religious affiliation has nearly quadrupled in the last 30 years, and 59% of millennials that were raised in church have dropped out. You cannot deny, unless you're living with your head in the sand, that there has been a dramatic shift in how people view the church in recent years. Historically, Americans have seen Christians and the church as a positive influence in the world. That is no longer the case. Today, the church in America is facing a credibility crisis. In 1975, Gallup said that 68% of Americans had a great deal or a quite a lot of confidence in church or organized religion. Gallup's 2019 survey found that that number was 36%. Good morning, welcome to City. We're just gonna have a warm and fuzzy message this morning, and we're just diving right in, all right? I've known for several weeks now that I would be the one to preach this specific message, and I've been carrying the pieces of this thing in a way that I don't normally. I felt the weight of it, not in a bad way, just in a Lord help me steward this well kind of way. Church hurt is a bucket word that a lot of degrees of pain and struggle get dropped into. It's not a one size fits all fix. In fact, this isn't a fix at all this morning. My hope today is that this will feel like us sitting down to a cup of coffee, sharing words, being vulnerable, receiving empathy and ultimately wisdom from the words of Jesus to move forward in our healing. And so if we were sitting down for a cup of coffee, one of the first things that I would probably do is share my story. Today, that story is the reason I knew I would be speaking this message weeks ago as we sat down to map out this series. Y'all know I'm a church girl born and bred. If you talk to me for more than a few minutes, you can guess that I was raised in this subculture and it is in me. I say that to say I wasn't sheltered from the pain and struggle of church. I watched my grandparents walk through pain and struggle. I watched my parents walk through pain and struggle, and I have dealt with my fair share as well. In 2012, I began a journey that I didn't fully understand at the time. Now, I would best label it as a disillusionment with the church, followed by a deconstruction of what I had known before and really a building of a faith that I could fully call my own. It was a beautifully painful time, and although I was naive and full of all of the untested fire that you have in your 20s, I never lost my affection for the church. I, quote, hated the American church. Bless that girl. <laughs> but I never lost the passion to serve and reform what I saw was missing. Fast forward through uh, several years of really hard ministry, and we came to a season that changed me in a way that not many things have. 
We had just merged our church with another church, which I shared a little bit about that story um, the last time I spoke. And then after the initial celebration phase, I began to pick up on some things. As a woman in leadership, you kind of start to learn the signs. Long story short, after several different scenarios, I knew that I was gonna have to pull myself out of the leadership room in order for anything to be able to get done. I knew that I was not gonna be able to be myself and that I was gonna have to step back from what I felt like God had called me to do if we were gonna have any chance of keeping this picture together of what we had, what we thought things were going to look like and so that's what I did and it was excruciating and it hurt me deeply. Here are two things that I know. I did not handle every situation perfectly, and the enemy used this and took it and had a field day in my mind and in my heart and in my spirit. He went straight to the heart of my calling, what I had dedicated my whole life to up until that point. It was a full-on assault of everything, and it very nearly took me out. I remember calling my grandma one day, and she was a woman preacher long before my time when it was even more rare, and she just said hello, and I sobbed uncontrollably. I couldn't even get one word out. And one day, I wrote these words in my journal, and I've come back to these words a lot since then, both to process and to heal and to share with others in a similar place. It was one of those honest David in the Psalms type journaling sessions in which I exclaimed, Lord, I feel like I keep showing up for the church and she's not showing up for me. I have a tendency to edit my prayers, especially when journaling, but I had moved way past pleasantries and into desperation. I genuinely did not know what to do. My life, my schedule, my calling, my family, all the things were tied up into this tangled web of connection into the world that we call church. Where does one part of it end and where does the other part begin? I was, it was so disorienting that I began to show physical signs. As Pastor Matt spoke about a few weeks ago, my body was telling me that I had reached the end of myself and that I needed to pay attention. And what I know is that the details are different, but so many of you in this room have similar stories. You may be further removed from, from it than me, or it may be still so fresh that it's hard to talk about. And if you are sitting in this room right now thinking about your own story, let me just start with, I'm sorry. The church is beautiful and flawed, and if you're carrying pain around, I am so deeply sorry. And it is with empathy and grace that we wade into these waters of what it looks like to identify, acknowledge, speak truth where it may hurt, and heal from this thing that we call church hurt. In every relationship, you have stages. Friendship, romantic, work, a new gym, a regular hangout, and obviously a church. And here's how things typically go. Number one is idealism. This stage is the honeymoon stage. Everything is perfect. They are perfect. They can make no mistakes. Everything that they do, I love the way they do this ministry, I love the way they do worship, I love the way they close out service, all of this, this is so good, this is so refreshing. I love it. Second stage is disillusionment. After we're around for a little while, after we settle into the fact that not everything is perfect like we once thought, and someone falls short, or maybe even a little deeper than that, you have a conflict with someone that makes you question the whole relationship. Someone 
hurts you. It is during this stage that we have a decision to make. It's the fork in the road that so many people don't get past because this step involves some uncomfortable work. It involves some uncomfortable conversations. It involves some emotional health introspection for myself. And so here's what happens. I either lean in and kind of settle into some of that uncomfortable work, or I find another relationship, place, or church that will better live up to my expectations, and so the process begins again. And when that happens, we never make it to the last stage of messy commitment. Messy commitment looks just like that holding together relationships and working through tensions and healing together through the ups and downs of interpersonal relationships. And we know this, we've talked about this several times already in this series. We want the fruit of messy commitment without the mess. But today is fully focused on the mess. Let's state the obvious. Church equals people and people hurt. Each and every one of us have been hurt and we have hurt others in relationship, people that we are walking in relationship with. And my hope is to meet you in that mess today and work through the process from disillusionment to messy commitment through a framework of movements, three different movements that we're gonna look at later as we go from holding our hurt to healing our hurt. We'll get to those movements here in just a minute, but first let's go back to our text for today. The subtitle in this section in my Bible was Instructions for Christian Living. Okay, perfect, let's do this. Paul is telling them in the first few, few verses that they are not to live as the Gentiles do or they're not to live as those outside of the church because the family of God doesn't give themselves over to whatever they happen to be feeling in the moment. They are to put off their old self and put on the new self in Christ Jesus and this new self is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's amazing. What a compelling and beautiful vision for what life is going to be like and what life is going to be like in this new family of God. This is leadership 101. Give us the big vision. Place the beautiful picture of what things could be in front of me to capture my imagination and my heart and ultimately my actions. Our vision, our mission here at City Church is to see our city transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Compelling, inspiring. And then we take that vision and we begin to flesh that out of what that actually looks like. That's what we do each and every week, each and every Sunday here is what does it look like to bring his kingdom here right on earth? And so Paul gives this big vision of what life is going to look like and then he begins to flesh that out. So let's pick up in verse 25. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. So he says, put off your old self and put on the new self. 
which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, and how does that actually play out in real life? Through the interpersonal relationships in the family of God. If we go all the way back to the beginning story, the story of creation, which I so love to do as often as I can, what is the big purpose or big vision of our lives? We are made to bear his image. As John Mark Comer says in Garden City, to make visible the invisible God. This is the 30,000 foot view of our ultimate calling in life. We are made to be like God and bear his image. And Paul says this, he says, this new self that we find now in Christ is again created to be like the Trinitarian community we call God. God exists within himself in community, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Our pursuit of reflecting the image and likeness of God can only be fully formed within community. We cannot be like God without community because God exists within community. It's one of our primary forms of sanctification, this slow process of becoming more and more like God, more and more like Jesus. Community is how we are formed into people of love. It's how we develop the fruit of the Spirit, where we live out being patient, kind, gentle, faithful, full of self-control. We give it when needed, and then we receive it when we inevitably need it. Paul says, therefore, if you're putting on your new selves, we have to work through disappointment, disillusionment, conflict, and hurt by not lying and speaking truthfully, working through our anger, not stealing, watching what comes out of our mouths, getting rid of all bitterness, anger, rage, brawling, slander, malice, being kind to one another, and compassionate, and forgiving. See, here's what tends to happen. We idealize the early church. In our pursuit of holiness and community, we say we are trying to find the Acts church, the one that is living out the way, the closest to the way that it began. And this isn't a bad thing, unless we are blotting out all of the imperfections and only looking at the highlight reel of the early church. So here's what we can infer from our text today. Paul wasn't writing this in a vacuum. He was speaking directly to a group of people who we can assume were Lying, stealing, angry, bitter, full of rage, and brawling and slander and malice. Who wants to jump on the growth track and start serving at that church? <laughs> Sign me up, right? I personally love this about scripture. The story of God and his people, it's gritty, it's not polished. It doesn't gloss over the tough stuff in order to put its best foot forward and maybe draw a few more people in. That's probably what I would do if I was writing it. But the story of the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament were like, hey, here's what happened unedited. We were a messy bunch of people. We had a lot of decisions to make and we did not make everyone happy all the time. There were times that there the certain group of people didn't think we were taking care of another group of people in the right way. Some people were eating with the Gentiles. Some people thought eating with Gentiles puts you out of right standing with God. Some were circumcised, some were not. And we basically stayed in and out of some sort of conflict constantly. And you know what else happened? God moved powerfully within our midst as we worked those things out. This is what we see in the early church. In my experience, a lot of the pain that comes from conflict is how we handle said conflict. What do we do when someone sins against us? When someone hurts us, 
talks about us, et cetera, et cetera. How do we handle those situations within the church? Jesus gives us a formula, if you will, for working through conflict, and he attaches a promise to it. If you've been around church for any amount of time, you may know this as the church discipline passage. It's another sermon to get fully in the weeds on this, but let's take a very quick look at these steps. This is good wisdom for conflict resolution. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So we go to the person one-on-one. Share your heart, their sin and yours, just between the two of you. Always entering the situation with humility, making sure we're looking at the plank in our own eye before looking at the splinter in someone else's, as Jesus says in another part of scripture. Notice it wasn't go and talk to everyone else in the group or ministry or microchurch or team or office first. It was go to them. Then take two or three others along. If one doesn't produce the healing that is needed, if a one-on-one conversation doesn't produce that, bring a few others along. Outside perspectives and wisdom can really help diffuse a situation. And then take it to the church. Now this isn't a jump up here during announcement time and air all your grievances type situation. Take it to the church, pastors, leaders, elders, etc., and then prayerfully decide in that room full of prayerful wisdom how to move forward. Real quick, the end feels like a way to um, write someone off, treat them like you would a pagan or a tax collector, but who's saying these words? Jesus is saying these words, and how did he treat them? He was famous for and got in a lot of trouble for loving them too much. He said, he also said that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who are against us. So no matter how this goes, there's no release from love. But here's the interesting thing that I find so incredible. Jesus gives us this very practical process and then connects it to a very powerful spiritual reality. Verse 18, the very next sentence, the very next verse Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two or three on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. How many of you heard this passage at a prayer meeting? And yes, for good reason, it's powerful reality. But how many of you have heard, have you heard it as often connected to how we deal with sin within our church relationships? I would guess less often just because that's my experience. But here's what we can see in this teaching from Jesus. The fruit of fought for unity within the church is power and presence. The fruit of fought for unity within the church is power and presence. And those two words are capitalized because it's the power and presence of Jesus. And it's worth fighting through some uncomfortable realities with each other, as hard and as painful as it may be. His power and his presence are in and amongst, living and among us. As we work these things out, as we just said about the early church, it's worth the cost to keep fighting for. 
And so now I know that that is easy to talk about and it's complicated and we have a lot of emotions that we're dealing with as we walk through this. And so now I wanna get to this framework that we talked about, these three movements. And as I said in the beginning, I don't know where you are on your particular journey, but I hope this will be a helpful framework to you. And as you can identify where you are and begin to move towards this beautiful place of messy community and all of the fruit that it holds. So three movements that we'll talk about as we end today. How do we move from holding our hurt to healing our hurt? From holding our hurt to healing our hurt. Number one, we move away from bitterness and towards connection. I am done with the church. The church is full of hypocrites. I'm good with Jesus, but not the church. Do these statements sound familiar? A couple things, this shows the bitterness that hurt people feel towards the, church, towards the church, and it shows the brokenness and the reality of a group of people that every church and its leaders should be willing to face and address. As the people of God, we cannot just write all of this off. We cannot just write all of these people off. We need to face the reality of some of those stats that I read at the beginning and shared and realize that we have a problem when we are hurt, the instinct is to pull away. And initially, this can be the most healthiest thing that we can do, but not for near as long as we tend to do. When hurt is left unaddressed, it very quickly turns to bitterness. This anger that develops inside of us that gives the devil a foothold, as we read in Ephesians 4 just a moment ago, that begins to grow in bitterness, and not just towards the individual, but to the institution as a whole. This is the very interesting dynamic that we see within church hurt. So quickly, one person or one community's flaws turns into bitterness and disconnection from the whole of the faith, from all of the institution of the church, capital C. Because it's hard to untangle. Because here's the disorienting thing. As Christians, as we just said, we bear the name of Christ. We declare the name of Christ, and some will even use the name of Christ in the midst of deeply wounding you. That's hard. And the reality is that hurt that comes from within the body of Christ just hits differently. It hurts differently because we expect more. We have this image of family. This whole series is about that. We have this image of family in our minds. We are siblings. We are coworkers. And when things go sideways, it just hurts deeply, and it's hard to untangle. We know in psychology, if you've heard the phrase, what fires together, wires together. I think that's so true in this instant. It's hard to untangle it all, and this is a huge tactic of the enemy. When hurt by a church's leaders, you now don't trust any church's leaders. When hurt by a Christian, you now don't trust any Christians. And our, our defense mechanism kicks in, and just frankly, it can be easier to just write it all off than it is to do the messy work of healing and restoration. Our preference tends to lean towards isolation and so we pull away and so often that leads to bitterness and a permanent disconnect from the church. Here's the truth though. Even though we will inevitably be hurt by the church, leaving the church is not a biblical option for the believer. Let me tease that statement out a little bit more. This does not mean that the right move for you isn't to leave the current community that you were in or that you were in. 
Some people in church leadership is just unhealthy and they aren't willing to walk through the process of reconciliation with humility and grace. Some people aren't willing to see their fault and sin and they're unwilling to change their hurtful behavior. Should you stay in a place that you attempt to work through hurt and pain with grace and with empathy but continue to be hurt by repeated actions? Absolutely not. Should you stay in a place where leaders use their platform to manipulate, where scripture is used to tear down or keep us in line, not with the truth of the gospel, but with some non-essential belief that's specific to the church? No. Sometimes the most healthy thing you can do is move on, but not into isolation and disconnection from the body and bride of Christ. This is what I mean from leaving the church is not a biblical option for the believer. And so we move away from bitterness and towards connection. Reminder, the church isn't a building, it's people. So we may move away from one specific church, but we don't leave the church capital C. It's in this time that we need each other the most. The lie is that we can go it alone and heal, but the truth is we need each other to heal from each other. We don't want to need each other and other people as badly as we do, but we do. Pastor Rich Velotis says this, we are wounded in community and we are healed in community. No way around it. Healing might not come from the community where the wounding took place, but community is needed nonetheless. You see, my prayer journaling statement that I read at the beginning was completely true in how I felt. But now that I have healed, I can see the flaw. The church was showing up for me in the form of people that I had been in deep community with for years, continuing to show up for us, believe in us, pray for us, hold our arms up when we could not hold our arms up anymore. People like Lance and Tanya Combs, who are not blood related to us, but we would absolutely consider blood family after years of ups and downs, mountains and valleys, highs and lows, celebrations, and we're still going. And so much can be said about this place about you people, about the leaders here at City. You see, the church hurt me, but it also healed me. So we move away from bitterness and towards connection. And the second movement is this. We move away from cynicism and towards surrender. What I've seen so often is that bitterness leads in a direct line into cynicism. We pull back from hurt We don't deal with our anger, it grows into bitterness, and we become then a cynic of all things that hurt us once before. We pride ourselves on being able to call everyone out on their insincerity and their fakeness, and in the meantime, we lose our joy. Paul Miller in A Praying Life, which is a book in our library, says this, the cynic is never fooled, so he is never delighted. Man, that's good. He goes on to say this, cynicism looks in the wrong direction. It looks for the cracks in Christianity instead of looking for the presence of Jesus. It's an orientation of the heart. Cynicism steals our wonder and our joy. 
It may start in a place of right constructive criticism. It may start from a place of something that actually needs to be said, but so often when you combine that with hurt and isolation, or on the other side of that, finding an echo chamber who hates all of the same people and places and churches that you do, it so quickly devolves into cynicism. And so my prayer is that we would be a people that move away from cynicism and towards surrender. We just did a whole series on surrender, so there's no reason to stay here long. But the best way to offer our hurt in full surrender is through prayer. Prayer for wisdom to how to best handle the situation. Prayer for our broken heart. Prayer for our offender. Man, that's hard. That's a hard one, but that's what we're called to do. Prayer together with others in community. This is something that we actually believe. Prayer changes things, and it almost always starts with us. And it leads us to an ability to be able to surrender the circumstances and our hurt and our pain in a freeing way like only Jesus can. And so what we're really talking about here is forgiveness. Through prayer, a letting go and a surrendering of all of that. So we move away from cynicism and towards surrender. And last, we move away from transmission and towards transformation. As Ronald Rollheiser so famously says, what we do not transform, we will transmit. When we do not get to the root of the issue and let the spirit have his way and work inside of us to transform us, we will transmit the issue to others, which comes the famous saying, hurt people hurt people. When we leave a church before attempting the work that we've uh, kind of talked about and laid out today in search of something else without processing the pain and hurt and conflict, we will inevitably carry that with us into the next scenario. Because we may leave one place, but you know who comes with us? We do. No matter where I go, I'm there. Like I said, not everyone wants to do this work and leaving a church and stepping into a new season may be the healthiest thing that you can do, but there's still work that needs to be done. Healing with others if possible and definitely healing within ourselves. If not, that hurt will follow you and you will inevitably attach those unresolved issues onto another person or another place. But when we lean into the Spirit's work of transforming our hurts and our hearts in those first few steps and those first few movements, we can move away from transmission and towards transformation. And then we get the opposite side of that famous saying that Pastor Stephen so beautifully spoke on a few weeks ago, healed people heal people. And so instead of holding our hurt and moving from bitterness, cynicism, and transmission, we move to healing our hurt and move into connection and surrender and transformation. Jesus loves the church. In fact, so many of us who have maybe a complicated relationship with the church, we still cannot deny his love for her. He uses such deeply personal and intimate language the body and bride of himself, of Christ. And we know this, and sometimes it's easier to think about uh, the church capital C, the global, the eternal church, when thinking about how much Jesus loves her. It puts a little bit of distance between the people that are in the chairs next to us or the people that are in the pews of the church that we left before. 
puts a little distance there, but Jesus doesn't just love the global eternal church. He loves the church. When he addresses the seven churches in Revelation, he calls each one of them by name. He points out their triumphs and their struggles. And over and over again, he says, I know. I know the apathy that you've fallen into. I know the persecution that you have been enduring. I know. Jesus sees the church. He sees this church. He sees the church that hurt you. And nothing can change his love and affection and pursuit of her. And he is inviting you into this healing work and his promise is the same. Where two or three are gathered in his name, his power and his presence reside there and it's worth the fight. Will you stand with me this morning? One of the really powerful things about rhythms in our life is their grounding, anchoring effect on us. And the same is true for us as a community, as a family of God. The things that we do each and every week, the things that we do regularly together, they ground us in a way that in and out of every season, we continue to do this thing. And one of those things is we come to the table each and every week. And it grounds us in a way where we can come to the table when things are good. We come to the table when things are not good. We come to the table when we think we've we've got a handle on this thing and we come to the table when we're hurting really badly and we're really needing to work through some things. We're holding a lot of messy things. But the table and what we do here together, it grounds us. It keeps us anchored to something that is bigger than the in and out seasons of our circumstances. And so that's what we're gonna do this morning. So if you would just take a few moments and prepare your hearts as we lean into coming to the table together.